Hi friends, Micah here, one of the pastors at the Vine Church in Pasco, Washington. Thanks for joining us here today. Today we have a treat. We get to hear from Carrie as we continue our series in 1 John. Now you might remember if you joined us in the beginning of this series, Carrie was the one who read the book in its entirety to us as we launched this series. Today we get to hear from him as we dig a little bit deeper into the second chapter of the book. We're continuing our trip through the letter of 1 John, and this week we're in the second chapter, uh, beginning at the 18th verse and running down through the 27th. Uh, before actually taking up this section of the text, I want to fill in a little context. John is writing around the year 90 AD, right at the end of the first century. The eyewitnesses to Jesus are dying off. Uh, John is one of the last left. He's probably in his 80s. And the movement of Jesus followers is feeling a shift as well, because there are now folks for whom the Jesus story is not something new. It's something they've always known. That's actually rather different from the context for Acts and most of Paul's letters, where there's nobody who isn't new to the message of Jesus. And so, as John is writing, for some people, the novelty has worn off. So they're starting to hear from people who are offering new and improved variations on Christian teaching. We learn a lot about the kinds of teaching that emerged from surviving writings of folks who are called the church fathers who are writing in the second and the third centuries. We also know something now about um, some of these other teachers because in the 1940s, there was actually an entire library of, how shall we say, variant Christian writings that were discovered at Nag Hammadi in Egypt. Now, the main thing that we learned from the discovery of Nag Hammadi is that actually the church fathers were pretty accurate in their descriptions of these various other teachings. Now, there were lots of other teachers, and there's lots of variety among them, but there are some common elements that show up in various combinations. One of those very common elements is a focus on secret knowledge. In Greek, the word for knowledge is gnosis. So lots of these folks are described frequently as Gnostic. It's just basically this emphasis on there being secret knowledge. Now, there are two other things that frequently attached to that basic teaching. One is that the normal Christian story is just a cover story to help keep the secret from getting out. Uh, today, when we encounter people who talk like this, we often describe them as conspiracy theorists. The other element that goes with it is the notion that only certain people are even capable of receiving the secret knowledge. So if you get the secrets, that means you're special. And at the heart of this is the idea that if you know the right facts or techniques, that's what saves you in some sense. 
Another idea, often combined with that, but sometimes standing by itself, is the notion that the material world is the creation not of the real God, but of some inferior power. If that's the case, then matter is a bad thing. It's something that should be escaped. And if Jesus is from the real God, he wouldn't really have anything to do with physical life. And so Jesus, therefore, in this teaching, would only appear to be human. Now, the Greek word for appearance gives rise to the label docetist for this kind of teaching, that Jesus only appeared to be human. He wasn't really human. One consequence of this also is it makes Jesus and the God who he represents deceptive, a liar, at least toward the people who aren't in on the secrets. Now, that disconnect between matter and the true God leads to one of two extremes. Either the conclusion is matter's bad, therefore we should have as little to do with it as possible. And that leads to asceticism, a denial of all physical pleasure and real physical engagement. The other alternative is to say matter doesn't matter. So that what we do physically doesn't matter either. There aren't any rules. There's no morality. As I said, all these ideas appear in various combinations. But this gives us a picture of the kinds of things that are being said around the churches to which John is writing. One, there's a better story than the one you've been told. Two, Jesus and God are deceiving those who aren't in on the secrets. Three, Jesus wasn't really human. And fourth, what you do doesn't matter. It's all about what you know. If we had more time, we could actually look through the letter of 1 John and find where John addresses all of those ideas. But instead, we're going to focus in, again, picking up at the 18th verse in the second chapter here. John says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. There's an odd word here, it's antichrist. And for many of us, that conjures all kinds of in times, end of the world teachings, and we think of the book of Revelation. Now, what's odder about it is that the word antichrist actually only shows up here in 1 John and in 2 John. And it's in the context of what is already going on then. 
at the end of the first century. But one of the things we can take out of this opening is that John is talking about a distinction between them and us. And that distinction is made apparent by the fact that they have not remained with us. They left. John continues, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Now, there's something that we lose in our translation into the English here. Um, What does this anointing have to do with Antichrist? Except the word Christ is Greek for anointed. So if I can play a little bit with the way that's worded in verse 20, John says, but you have a Christing from the Holy One, and you all know. That makes the Christ the contrast between these anti-Christs and the Christed ones whom Paul, whom John is addressing, all the clearer. He goes on. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who's the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Hear what John says. I'm not writing because you're ignorant. I'm not writing because you don't know the secrets. I'm writing to you because you already know the truth. And the real division we have here between John, his audience, and those antichrists is over who Jesus Christ is. Over in 2 John, in verses 6 and 7, John fleshes that out. Over there he says, As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the Antichrist. So here we get the notion, there are folks who are denying that Jesus came in the flesh, that Jesus is really human. That's the division between the pro-Christ and anti-Christ. We also have picked up in back in 1 John with another one of John's phrases. What you've heard from the beginning. Back in 1 John. As for you, see what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. What you have heard from the beginning. The original story. The one you were taught by John or Paul or the 
teachers who originally taught them about Jesus. That was the truth. It's still true. Don't leave it, but remain with it. Now, remain is a very John verb. The Greek verb there is used about 100 times in the New Testament. 60% of those, it's talking just in an ordinary physical sense. Jesus stayed for two more days beyond the Jordan, for example. But the other uses, about a fifth of them, are right here in 1 John. The other fifth are in four chapters of the Gospel of John. Now, that's not very much of the New Testament to have so much use of that one word. And what sets it apart there is that it's really placed as a command. In Jesus's final discourse with his apostles, with the 12, he's telling them to remain in him. And here, John is saying, let the word remain in you so that you remain in Jesus. This echoes the contrast that we had back in verse 19. The Antichrists left instead of remaining. With that word in mind, I want to pick back up with verse 24 again. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the Christing you have received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his Christing teaches you about all things, and as that Christing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Now, John isn't saying here that we don't need to be learning, that we might not need correcting. Because if that were the case, he wouldn't have been writing this at all. But what John is saying is that we don't need a new and improved gospel. We don't need a different story about Jesus. Instead, we need to dwell in the story we have. We need to stay firmly rooted in the true story about Jesus, which we already have access to. Now, for us, what we have heard from the beginning is what we have in Scripture. That's what those early followers of Jesus preserved as reflecting the reliable teaching that they had received. We do look to what we receive directly from God, that anointing, that Christing. But that confirms our confidence in the word we have received. That's something John is going to take up again later in the letter, too. I want to close out by drawing attention to something that would be easy to miss. 
just a little phrase back in verse 25. We don't have time today to unpack this properly, but as with almost everything in 1 John, it will come back again later. The end of verse 25, notice what he says. And this is what he promises us, eternal life. That's already an echo from the opening of the letter. Back in chapter 1, in verses 2 and 3, he says, The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have a share in it with us. And our share is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Note the tense. The thing that's shared here is eternal life that has appeared in Christ. But it's in the present tense. We share in the life of Jesus, the very life of God, the eternal life, now. Now that is a thought worth hanging on to. Let's wrap up with a prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for what you have made known to us through Jesus. We thank you that we have received reliable testimony to know the true story about Jesus. Father, root us in that story. Help us to remain in that story, to grow, to work out what that story means for us so that we can live your life now in the world and show Jesus to those around us. Father, thank you for the gift of confidence, for this anointing, for this bit of Christ in us. Thank you for your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.